Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And so all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Habakkuk 3, 3 through 4, and 2.20. God came, came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Lift up your hearts. Let us pray. Father God, the greatness of your glory causes us to put our hand over our mouth in reverence. Who are we to speak? What have we to bring? What words are worthy of you? Yet by your Son, the Word made flesh, you have saved us and filled us with your joy so that we cannot help but to make a loud noise, to shout for joy, to sing your praise, to declare with all our might, amen. Blessing and glory and honor be unto you, Almighty God, and unto the Lamb and to the Holy Ghost, world without end, and amen. amen. Let's lift our voices together and sing hallelujah, praise the Lord on page 196. Amen. You may be seated. When something is spoiled, it is stripped of the qualities which made it valuable or useful. The forgotten gallon of milk in the fridge is a good reminder that what was once a useful ingredient has now become an intolerable stench. And as an aside, why is it when something's spoiled, we want to invite someone into the spoiling? I think this is spoiled. What do you think? We are warned in Colossians 2.8 not to be spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world. Being spoiled here means more than just going bad. The word Paul uses here in his warning to the Colossians implies a robbery, a stripping, a plundering. The vain philosophies and traditions of men are like foul-breathed pirates intent on taking everything you have. Think of a line of slaves, stripped naked, being led off to work in the sweatshops. That is the condition in which worldly philosophy will leave you. In a word, spoiled. But a little later, Paul reminds us that Christ has spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Colossians 2.15. A similar idea is conveyed here, but with Christ doing the spoiling. And he is spoiling the very same powers, principalities, and philosophies which aim to take you and all you possess captive. So Paul's warning here can be summarized as, do not be spoiled by those whom Christ has spoiled. Don't be conquered by that which Christ has conquered. Don't be fooled by that which Christ outwitted. Jesus overcame the powers that be, stripped them naked, and left them red-faced. And this is the context in which we are told to, in the next chapter, put on the new man, put on Christ. The philosophies and fads of this world want to strip you naked and leave you in your shame, but Christ wants to clothe you in himself, and he can clothe you because he defeated and spoiled all your enemies. 
This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let's prepare to do so by singing, Be Gracious Unto Me, O God, on page 88 of your contus. Amen. So as you're able, let's kneel together in confession of our sin. Habakkuk 3, 12 and 16. Thou didst march the land in indignation, thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Father God, we are all too easily fooled by the world's philosophies, charmed by man's traditions, allured by the fads of our society. We acknowledge that these things only strip us bare and leave us in shame. So we come to you to clothe us. We hide ourselves in Christ and Christ alone. We know if we in the church regard sin in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. amen. Let's rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Habakkuk 3, 13, 18, and 19. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundedst the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Because of this glorious and gracious truth of our God, I can declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be God. Amen. The text this morning is Psalm 105. These are the words of God. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying unto thee, Will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance? When they were but few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. He suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land, he brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and, and ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants.' 
He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they rebelled not, and they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the, in the chambers of their kings. He spake, and there came divers sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coasts. He spake, and the locusts came, and caterpillars, and that without number, and did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He smote also the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the fear of them fell upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The people asked, asked, and he brought quails and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. And he brought forth his people with joy and his chosen with gladness and gave them the lands of the heathen and they inherited the labor of the people that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise ye the Lord. Our Father and God, we thank you for this word before us now. I pray that your spirit would be uh, in our midst applying this word to our hearts and lives and we pray that, that you would do this not because we deserve to ask but because we ask in the name of Jesus. And amen. So what we have here in this psalm, Psalm 105, is a glorious retelling of God's deliverance of Israel in and through the Exodus. The whole latter part of the, uh, the psalm is a recounting of all the events of the, uh, in, in uh, Egypt leading up to the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. In addition, we find that it is a retelling that is theologically sophisticated, and it is that on several levels. It's not simply a history lesson. It's not simply this happened, and then this other thing happened, and then another thing happened. There are layers to all of this, and it's quite wonderful. To summarize, the, to, to walk through the psalm so, we, so that we make sure that we get everything that is said, the listener is invited to give thanks to the Lord and to make his deeds known to the people. God loves to do wonders, and he loves it when his people talk about the wonders that he has done. Verse, verse 1, we are invited to talk about what God has done. We need to hear one another talking about what God has done. We need to testify as to his mighty works. We are to sing to him and we're to talk of his mighty works. Verse 2, we're, we are to sing and talk both. We're to sing about God's wonderful works and we're to talk with one another about God's wonderful works. We should glory in his name. And those who seek him should rejoice. Verse 3. Those who seek after God should not be long of face. Those who are following God, those who are disciples of Christ, should not be trying to prove it by how dour and sour they might be. We should rejoice if we are seeking after his name. Seek the Lord and his strength and his face, it says in verse 4. Seek the Lord and his strength and his face. We are to be pursuing God. We are to be desiring God. We are to be loving God. And when, we, and when we recount his mighty deeds, this is informing us as to the nature of the God we are pursuing. What is this God like that we are pursuing? What is this God like that we are desiring? So we are to recall, uh, we, are to re we are to recall the history of all his deeds, verse 5. 
The descendants of Abraham, and I want you to mark that, the descendants of Abraham are the Jews. The descendants of Abraham are summoned to this glorious duty. Verse 6, he's focusing on the Jews. He's focusing on the history of Israel. More about this later, but he's not excluding the Gentiles as we will see. The descendants of Abraham are summoned to this glorious duty. He is God and he judges all the earth. Verse 7. In other words, he's not simply the, the, territorial, the territorial God of Israel. He's not a local deity. He's not a local Baal. He is the God who judges all the earth. All the nations are under his authority. So the descendants of Abraham are summoned to this duty, verse 6. He is God and he judges all the earth, verse 7. God is a God who remembers his covenants to a thousand generations, verse 8. And just for a time marker, in the history of the world, we've not had a thousand generations go by yet, all right? We have not yet had a thousand generations, and God is faithful to a thousand generations, verse 8, including, for instance, his covenant with Abraham, verse 9, his covenant with Isaac, verse 9, and his covenant with Jacob, verse 10. In, in the book of Exodus, I think it's at the end of chapter 2, uh, it says that God heard the groaning of the Israelites in Egypt and he remembered his covenant. He heard the groaning of the Israelites and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he delivered them. This is for all of Israel, for an everlasting covenant, also verse 10. He promised to grant them Canaan, verse 11, and the promise was made when they were just few in number. He, pr he gave his promises when there was just a handful of them. They were few in number, verse 12. And, and while they were on their pilgrimage, he protected them as his own anointed, verses 13 through 15. You remember, for example, the episode with Abraham when Ab uh, Abimelech was messing with Sarah and God protected him. God said, this man's a prophet. And um, <laughs> Abimelech had the dream, behold, thou art a dead man. Uh, one of the great lines of scripture, behold, thou... <laughs> Okay, what happened? And, and Abimelech was given the ungarbled word, and he lets, uh, he lets uh, Abraham go bestowing on him. God was, the one, God was the one who called up the famine that brought Israel down to Egypt in the first place, verse 16. In other words, God took Israel down into Egypt so that he might deliver them up out of Egypt. He had sent a man before them to prepare for them in verse 17, and that man was Joseph. That man was a slave, and his feet were afflicted by the fetters, verse 18, until it was time for Joseph's word to rule over, uh, over the entire land of Egypt, the word of the Lord tested him, verse 19. So the word of the Lord was given to Joseph to rule over Egypt, but before the word of the Lord ruled over Egypt through Joseph, the word of the Lord had to rule over Joseph. So the word of the Lord had to rule over Joseph. He had to spend time in prison. He had to, he had to work through numerous issues and, and no doubt a lot of thoughtful times there in prison. What am I doing here? What's this all about? How can I be in prison when, when those dreams, when those prophecies I had back when I was with my family have to come true? What, what am I doing here? The word of the Lord tested Egypt all right, the word of the Lord tried Egypt and delivered Egypt at that time through Joseph, but Joseph had to be tested by the word of the Lord first. The Pharaoh released him, verse 20, the Pharaoh released him from prison. You recall that that was because of the dream that he had regarding the, uh, the coming famine. 
and he put him in charge of everything, verses 21 and 22. Jacob himself came down to the land of Ham, verse 23, Ham being one of the sons of uh, uh, Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. So Egypt is the land of Ham. So Jacob comes down to the land of Ham, and the Jews multiplied, verse 24. God arranged for the Egyptians to turn on them, verse 25, and then he sent Moses and Aaron with the power to work wonders, verse 26 and 20, verses 26 and 27. Now, we then work through the plagues of Egypt. Though darkness was the darkness that covered the land was not the first plague historically, the psalmist begins with it in verse 28. It was an emblematic plague. Darkness over the face of the land is really, uh, really something, especially if you don't know the cause, especially if you don't, don't know what's going on. Those of you who were here in 1980 when Mount St. Helens blew and the cloud of ash came over here, I recall distinctly it being three in the afternoon, Sunday afternoon, three in the afternoon, and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. It was pitch black. You could have been a mile down in some cavern somewhere. It was absolutely pitch black in the middle of the afternoon. Now, just imagine that happening and you not knowing anything about what was going on. This is a, an emblematic plague. And so it's the, uh, it's the keynote of this particular poetic recitation of all the, uh, of all the plagues. The Egyptians worshiped the sun, remember, it's, it's one thing to have the sun blackened and you don't worship the sun, but suppose you worshiped the sun. They worshiped the sun under the name Osiris, and the word Pharaoh includes sun as one of its meanings. So the, these plagues that are rain, rain down on Egypt are plagues that are aimed at their gods. These plagues are aimed at their gods, and the, this preeminent plague, the one of darkness, aims at a, a central god, the sun. God also turned the Nile. The Nile was the, was the lifeline of all of Egypt. He turned the Nile to blood and he killed their fish, verse 29. Another plague was that of frogs everywhere, uh, verse 30. And then, you know, and there were different reasons that Pharaoh had for hardening his heart. There was the, this plague of frogs everywhere, even in the chambers of the kings. And uh, so he looks, Pharaoh looks to his wise men and they, they too could produce more frogs. And Pharaoh said, or thought perhaps, great, more frogs. That's, <laughs> can, could you, couldn't you perhaps exercise your power to make some frogs go away? Couldn't you just, I don't need more frogs. God spoke. And there were all kinds of flying insects, and there were lice everywhere. There were lice everywhere, verse 31. He gave them hail and fire, verse 32. And he struck their vines, fig trees, and other trees, verse 33. There was one point in all of this, don't you recall, when Pharaoh's counselors came to him and said to Pharaoh, don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? Don't you realize that Egypt is overthrown? And it was the superpower of the day. And this is, you know, this is one uh, shepherd who comes out of Midian, and this shepherd is just raining down plagues on Egypt, and he's, he's wrecking, uh, wrecking the place. So he all the trees are destroyed. Then there were locusts and countless caterpillars, verse 34, and they ate everything, verse 35. The ultimate stroke was that of taking the life of all the firstborn sons in the land, from Pharaoh down to the stable hands. Verse 36, the Israelites, the Israelites took the Egyptians silver and gold at their departure with Egypt, a smoking ruin behind them. And not one Israelite was limping, it says. 
The, when Israel went out, not one of them was limping, and Egypt was in the ICU. Egypt was wrecked. And the Israelites walked out with their head up and no one limping. Verse 37. The Egyptians were glad to see them go, in effect paying them to go. And God placed a fear of the Jews on them. Verse 38. The kindness of God gave the Israelites shade by day and fire at night. Remember, this, there was a great pillar, and this pillar shaded them during the day, and this pillar gave them light by night. It was a comfort for them. Verse 39, he gave the people quail and manna both, verse 40. And here in this psalm, this is an upbeat, positively stated um, psalm, so it doesn't mention the discreditable way in which the children of Israel grumbled and got the quail. It just says the quail was given to them as a blessing. He opened a rock for them so that they might have water, verse 41. And why? Because he had remembered his word to Abraham, verse 42. He brought the people out with joy and gladness, verse 43. He gave them the land of the heathen, the Goyim, and so they inherited Canaan, verse 44. And this was so that they might keep God's laws and praise the Lord. And so we return to the keynote. We begin with praise the Lord and we end with praise the Lord. And we look again at this sandwich. All the, all the meat of the praise is in between those two praises offered to God. Now, I want to take, take just a moment uh, uh, to talk about the sovereignty of God. And I want to put sovereignty of God, put that word sovereignty in scare quotes for a minute. And I, I think you'll understand why. Uh, shortly. While this matter of sovereignty is not the main point of the psalm, it is an assumption that undergirds the entire psalm. And so we, sh we need to take just a few moments to consider it. I don't want to uh, get entirely distracted. I just want to take note of this. You should recall that Joseph attributed the treachery of his brothers to the good counsels of God. Remember, Joseph, is, his brothers are jealous, envious of him. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. He has trials and adventures there, but he eventually rises to the second point of power in the land. Pharaoh keeps the throne to himself, but Joseph runs everything else. Uh, Joseph has all the powers of Pharaoh. He's running Egypt. And when his brothers come to him and he recognizes them and they don't recognize him, he works them over a little bit to test them, to probe how they are doing. And eventually Jacob comes down to Egypt to, to be re reunited with his son, Joseph. The brothers are afraid that when Jacob, di when Jacob dies, then uh, Joseph will execute his Revenge, And Joseph tells them this in Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you thought, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. God meant it unto good. In other words, there were two actors in this. When you were selling me into slavery, that was a sin on your part. But God was doing something in that same action. God was doing something in and through that same action. You meant it for evil, but God was overriding your evil intent for good. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. The, the purpose of the envious brothers was to destroy, and the purpose of God was to save, and they were both handling the same action. Joseph being sold into Egypt by his, uh, into slavery into Egypt by his envious brothers. So we see the same 
We seem, see that, that same reality acknowledged here in this psalm, which teaches us that God can handle dirty instruments, men, women, God can handle dirty instruments without soiling his hands. When God uses sinners, when God uses evil actors, he can do it without, without participating in the sin that accrues to the sinner only. How did, Joseph, how did Joseph get down into Egypt? The psalm says in verse 17, look at verse 17. The psalm says that God sent him there. God sent, why did Joseph go to Egypt? He was sent. God sent him to Egypt. Joseph could be excused for thinking, a little thought bubble above his head. It doesn't feel like I'm being sent. It feels like I'm being taken. It feels like I'm being sold. It feels like the fetters, it says in this psalm, the fetters hurt him. But the psalm says that God sent him on ahead of Israel. God sent him on ahead of Israel, verse 17. And this meant that the sale of Joseph into slavery by his brothers was God's instrument for saving the lives of those brothers and their families. So trust God. Always trust God, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what it feels like. Trust God. If you had asked any one of those brothers when Joseph was down in the pit and, the, and, and there were gradations of righteousness or unrighteousness among them, uh, one of them was going to pull, um, pull Joseph out of the pit and, and save him, but it was too late. Uh, some, another one talked them out of killing him outright and selling him into slavery. Why don't we make some money on the side? So some were, some were simply kidnappers and slavers. Others were potential murderers. One was a potential rescuer, but didn't get to it in time. So it was an uneven group. But pick anybody in that group. They, did, they would not have the right, if interrupted, to say, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? They would not have had the right to say, I'm saving my family from a famine. That's not what they were doing. They were striking at someone they hated. They weren't saving their family from a famine, but they were. Because God draws straight with crooked lines. The sin of Joseph's brothers was one of the instruments, the sin of Joseph's brothers was one of the instruments God used to save Joseph's brothers. God was saving Joseph's brothers by means of their sin. The sin of Judas, for example, and Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews, the most, when they betrayed Jesus, when they executed Jesus, this was the most monstrous of sins ever committed on this planet. And that, that's saying something. It was the most monstrous of sins committed on this planet. And that was the sin that God was using to save the world. That was the salvation of all nations. That was the salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him to what? Gave him over to Herod, Pontius Pilate, all the Jews. He gave him over to the cross. Christ went to the cross in order to save the world. And he was taken to the cross by envious, bitter, hateful, evil men. So what, is the, what does the scripture say in Acts 4, 26 through 28? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy, holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. 
the wickedness of the entire world, think about this, the wickedness of the entire world built a high gallows in order to hang the righteousness of God on it. The, the wickedness of all the world built a high gallows, a tall gallows, in order to hang the righteousness of God on it, and Haman-like was hanged there instead. That's what happened. That's the story God tells over and over again. He's telling the, that story with Joseph. He's telling that story with Esther and Mordecai and that, that whole thing. God tells this story over and over again. Oh, the depth of the wisdom. So we see the same principle at work later in this psalm. Why did the Egyptians who welcomed Israel into, into their land, they welcomed them initially, why did they turn hostile toward Israel? Look at verse 25. It says, he turned, who turned? God turned. He turned, God turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants. Why did, Egyptian, why did the Egyptians turn on Israel? God turned their heart. You've heard it often. You heard it a moment ago. You will hear it many times again. God draws straight with crooked lines. God is God. Now, I said earlier, put sovereignty in, in scare quotes. Why? Because we're really not talking about the sovereignty of God as one of the attributes of God that we have tucked away in a systematic theology. We're talking about the godness of God. What are we saying when we say God is sovereign? We're saying nothing other than that God is God. God is not one of us. God is not Zeus. He's not a larger version of one of us. God is God. In him we live and move and have our being, and he controls absolutely everything. And he controls righteousness the way the Spirit quickens righteousness in us. Directly it proceeds from him. And wickedness is not something that derives from him in the same way. God is, as the Westminster Confession says, God is not the author of sin. But God is the author of a story in which sin occurs, and he uses it perfectly. He uses it perfectly. Joseph, I'm sending you to Egypt, and I'm going to send you there in a way where it will be hard for you to trust me, because it says the word tested Joseph. God's word tested Joseph. Joseph had to work through it. He had to surrender. He had to give things up. God, uh, God said to Joseph, I'm sending you to do a great work. I'm sending you to do a great work, and I'm going to test you first. I'm going to test you first. Now, there's a nice, I said at the beginning that this psalm has, is theologically sophisticated. There are layers to it. And I want to get to, um, I want to, get to one of those, one of the great um, aspects of this psalm. The Apostle Paul tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us, and he tells us flat out, that the inclusion of the Gentiles together with the, the, the inclusion of the Gentiles together with the Jews was a great mystery. Ephesians 3, 6. It is now plainly revealed in the new covenant, but after the fact, as we search the Old Testament scriptures, we can see it everywhere, and we can particularly see it in this psalm. In other words, in the New Testament, we have Jew and Gentile coming together. God's making one new man out of the two. He's making Christian where before there was Jew and Gentile. But then when we go back through the Old Testament, we start to, things start to jump up and, and wave at us and say, didn't you notice me? Didn't you notice this before? How about this? How about this? This is one of those places, and particularly in this psalm. The establishment and founding of Israel was, in fact, the hope of the entire world. 
There are two ways you can have a chosen, the Jews were God's chosen people. They were not God's chosen people in the sense of, um, I'm choosing you and forget about the rest of you guys. It's, it's sort of like um, being the chosen people where it was not saying you are my favorite people and you've got your act together. And so because you've got your act together, I'm going to favor you with my blessings. God says explicitly, you weren't any more righteous than anybody else. You were just as big a mess as everybody else. And it's, it's more like a chosen pupil in front of a, in a class. So let's say a math teacher is uh, te trying to teach some difficult problem. He picks one student to come up to the board to do the problem. Now, that's a chosen pupil. But the, cho the pupil is chosen so that the rest of the class can see what's going on. And if that student hasn't studied, if that student gets it all wrong, he's the goat. Right? He, he's, he's humiliated in front of everybody. If he gets it right, he's blessed in front of everybody. The teacher says, well done to him in front of everybody. Or the teacher says, go sit down in front of everybody. That was the position that Israel had in the Old Testament. God was not picking Israel because he didn't want to deal with the other nations. Remember earlier in this psalm, it says, God is the judge over all the earth. God is the God of all the nations. When the temple was built, the outer court, the, which was later on the court that Jesus cleansed when he cleansed the temple, is, well, the name for that was the court of the Gentiles. And the problem with what was going on when they, with the money changers, money changers and the selling of sacrificial animals, you know that in Acts, unclean animals represented the Gentiles because that's what was lowered in the sheet to Peter in his vision. Uh, go preach the gospel of the Gentiles, and that was communicated to him by means of unclean animals. All these sacrificial animals that were being sold in the, in the courts were clean animals for Jews to buy. So what was happening is the Jews were elbowing the Gentiles out. This was the court of the Gentiles. This was as far as the Gentiles could come to worship the God of Israel. And the Jews were acting like they were the favorite people and not the chosen people. And this is why when Jesus cleanses the temple, he quotes the Old Testament scriptures and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The word for nations is ethnoi. Another translation is Gentiles. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the Gentiles, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And he cleanses the, the temple. The whole point, the whole point that the Old Testament is building up to is, the is this great mystery that Paul talks about, the inclusion of the Gentiles together with the Jews. The establishment and founding of Israel. Now, at the same time, what's more distinctly uh, part of Israel's history than the exodus from Egypt. The establishment and founding of Israel was in fact the hope of the entire world. Now the covenantal establishment of Israel occurred at Mount Sinai. And that was about a year into the, a year after the exodus, the people gathered at Mount Sinai and you remember God gives the law and he makes covenant. The, peop the people formally make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. That's the formal establishment. That's the covenantal establishment of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. That's the covenantal establishment of Israel when Israel solemnly bound themselves to God. But the dramatic establishment of Israel occurred in the Exodus. That was the, that was the point where God delivered them. That's the dramatic establishment. So walk with me through this. As a moment's reflection shows, this Psalm is all about that Exodus, the dramatic birth of Israel. 
Look at Israel, Israel being delivered, Israel being shaped, Israel being saved. This is the establishment, the dramatic establishment of the nation of Israel. But make sure you get it right. Because the first 15 verses of this psalm, the first 15 verses are also found at the dedication of the tabernacle of David in 1 Chronicles 6, 7 through 22. So the first part of this psalm is used at the dedication of the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David is, is where the Ark of the Covenant was housed when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back from the Philistines and there was a, they had a rocky return because it, it was uh, a bunch of Israelites were killed for peeking into it and then it was established in the household of Obed-Edom and his household was blessed exceedingly. And look at his name for a minute, Obed-Edom. That's a Gentile. That's a oh, Edom. That's a descendant of Esau. Obed-Edom uh, had the ark for a while and his house was greatly blessed. And then David finally, David tries to bring uh, the ark of the covenant up, carry, uh, bringing it in the same way the Philistines had transported it on a cart. All right. And, and the oxen stumble and the ark almost goes over. And uh, uh, the, the man who, who grabs it is struck dead. And so David, uh, whoa, and he, he parks the ark and he, and then later they bring it, they start it, they bring it in again, this time carrying it the way the law requires Levites to carry it. He brings the ark of the covenant up to Jerusalem and he has a tent built and that tent is the tabernacle of David. And the ark of the covenant is housed on Mount Zion in the tabernacle of David. So, and, and 1 Chronicles 16 uses the first half of this psalm in order to dedicate that tabernacle. Now, at the Council of Jerusalem, centuries later, the Lord's brother, James, explicitly takes the prophecy of Amos, which is centuries after this, uh, this psalm was written, the prophecy of Amos in Amos 9, 11, and 12, Amos says that the tabernacle of David will be rebuilt and James says that that prophecy, that the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David is referring to the inclusion of the Gentiles. That's what the tabernacle of David is all about, including Gentiles. That's the meaning of the tabernacle of David. And James says this explicitly. The council at Jerusalem is meeting. What do we do with all these Gentiles who are becoming Christians? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jews in order to become Christians? The council at Jerusalem says, no, they don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians because God is making one new man out of the two. God is making Christ Christians out of Jews and Gentiles alike. Where, where might we find scriptural attestation for this? James says in Amos, when it says the tabernacle of David will be rebuilt. The tabernacle of David is all about Gentiles. So, I already mentioned Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom, incidentally, when, it's, when the ark is taken from his house, Obed-Edom comes with it, and he becomes someone who's ministering at the tabernacle of David. And consider the fact that while the tabernacle was dedicated with blood sacrifices, it was not for blood sacrifices. It was dedicated with blood sacrifices, but what was it for? What, what did they do in the tabernacle of David? Well, David's a musician, and it was a place where God was worshiped with the sacrifices of praise. Not unlike what we do here now. We don't slaughter bulls and goats. There's, the, the Messiah has been crucified once for all, 
blood and we, we don't have an animal sacrifice. We don't shed blood. What we do is we commemorate the, sh the shed blood once for all in the Lord's Supper. But what we are offering up is a sacrifice of praise. So the tabernacle on Mount Zion was recovered, was, was reserved for music. The tabernacle of David was a precursor of the international Catholicity of the church. That's what the tabernacle of David was all about. Now, also just very quickly, when David's son, Solomon, builds the temple, the temple is built on Mount Moriah. The temple is built on Mount Moriah. After the temple is built, the tabernacle of David is dismantled and taken up into the temple. So the tabernacle is moved up to the temple. And the name Zion, Zion is a different mountain than Moriah. Zion is a different mountain, but the name Zion is the one that sticks. The name Zion is one that Gentiles have a birthright in. Just as God humbled the brothers of Joseph, just as God humbled the brothers of Joseph as his means of saving them, so also he humbled the Goyim of Canaan. Verse 44, the Israelites invade Canaan. They destroyed the, the, uh, the Canaanitic nations that are there. He's humbling the Gentiles. He's humbling the Goyim. And this is his means of saving the Goyim of the entire earth. Praise the Lord, you people, verse 1, for his judgments are marvelous throughout the entire earth. And so here you are, 2,000 years later in northern Idaho. Here you are on the other side of the globe, you Goyim, you Gentiles, 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus accomplished your salvation and 3,000 years after King David prophetically enacted it through the sacrifice of his praise. This is what scripture is pointing to. This is what it's all about. Psalm 22, 28. Let me give, just give you a handful of verses. Psalm 22, 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. The kingdom is the Lord's, and he's the governor among the nations. Psalm 67, 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Let the nations be glad. How on earth is it possible for the nations to be glad when they're still in their sins? Glory to God, they are, they're not in their sins because with his blood, he has purchased men for, for God from every tribe, every language, every nation. And then Jesus says, go, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, disciple what? The ethnoi, disciple the nations. Psalm 72, verse 11. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. I wonder what that means. <laughs> when the Bible says, all nations shall serve him, I wonder what the deeper meaning is. There is no deeper meaning. It was well, deep on the surface and it's deep all the way down. That's why you're here. The nations are streaming to Christ. All nations, here's Psalm 86, verse 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorif glorify thy name. All nations are going to come and worship before him. So, all authority, whether in heaven or on earth, has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations belong to him because he, because he bought them with his blood. 
And this is the sure foundation of God's good news for this sorry planet. Left to our own devices, we would, do, we would gravitate all by ourselves. We would gravitate to, gravitate to some sort of Egyptian darkness, and we'd want that darkness to be permanent. And that's what the outer darkness is, us willing to keep God away. But God says, I, don't, I have no intention of letting you outrun me. I have no intention of letting you get away with your own damnation. Every one of us left to our own devices would seek out and secure our own damnation. That's where our hearts would veer apart from Christ. And God in his glory, God in his wisdom, God in his kindness took the, the, the great evil of our representatives, the Romans, the Jews, everyone, Gentiles and Jews together, Herod and Pilate together, all of them together, they did, they did what God had predetermined to happen because God wanted to save you. God intended to save you. And he saved you by means of the blood of a murder victim. Jesus says, don't you know that I could, I could call legions of angels and get out of this, right? I, I, but he submitted. He had submitted to the, to the Lord's will. He didn't want, on one level, he didn't want it. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was the salvation of you, 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 and you. That was his will. And that's what Jesus was submitting to. And when he was submitting to it, he was submitting to the word, the will of God as revealed here and revealed repeatedly here. And that's, this is why Jesus said scriptures cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. And because scripture cannot be broken, you, your brokenness is restored. Scripture cannot be broken. And therefore that which is broken can be put back together in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank, for, thank you for all that you've given to us, all that you've poured out on us. I pray that you give us, give us wisdom as we seek to understand the depths of this. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. In this bread and wine, you are offered a blessing. The blessing is of a refreshment, a satisfaction, which cannot be derived from mere bread or mere wine. The refreshment and blessing which you crave is only found in righteousness. It is found in right standing with God. But check your pockets. All you'll find there are the grimy leaves of self-righteousness. Audit your moral books. You'll only find a ledger covered in red ink, ethical debts you can't repay, good work checks that have bounced, well-intentioned IOUs which remain unfulfilled. The blessing which accompanies this meal is that those who are fed up with their own righteousness will be fed with Christ's righteousness. This meal gives rest from works righteousness. You hunger and thirst to be accepted by God, and here is the token that those who have put on Christ by faith are reckoned as righteous by God the Father. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because they will be satisfied. You can be satisfied because in Christ, God the Father is satisfied with you. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, made, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Amen.
So the, the psalm this morning in verse 5 tells us to remember the wondrous works which God has done. So the charge, the homework, is to go home sometime today, sometime this week, and reflect on a point not just in redemptive history, but in your redemptive history, in your story, when God has done a wondrous thing, when God has done something merciful, when you've seen a kind providence of God. Is it a certain healing from some disease? Is it an unexpected $100 bill? in the pocket? Is it God doing something marvelous and wondrous in your life? And then don't just keep it to yourself. We see in the psalm, go tell people. Share it with your children. Share it with your family. Share it with your neighbors. Tell of the wondrous works which God has done. Hear the benediction of God. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen. Amen.